0: So how many of you recognize that how you say something is just as important as what you say? Yes, very many of you. Tone is important. Now having been married for 31 and a half years, I believe I know my wife very well, so much so that I know the difference between her saying, Theo, I have something to tell you. And Theo, I have something to tell you. One one means that she has something special that she wants to share and she can't wait to share it. The other means that you're in big trouble with me, buddy. (laughs) Tone is everything. In today's lesson, we are going to hear Jesus say to a man identified only as Simon the Pharisee. I have something to say to you. Now He will say it very gently, but very convictingly. In fact, Simon felt very convicted after Jesus had told him what he had to tell him. And hopefully we will also feel the same conviction. So we're in the book of Luke chapter 7. Uh, we are considering verses 36 through, f- through 50. However, we're going to just be reading from verse 40 onwards. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. And so Jesus proceeds now to tell him what he had to tell him. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I want to say to us this morning, first of all, that Jesus is the bridge that the self righteous and the sinful need. Now, there are three characters in the story that we just read. The first is Simon the self-righteous. The second is a sinful woman of the city. And the third is the sinless Jesus who loves them both. Now, as you're well aware, Pharisees belonged to a religious sect, a Jewish sect, who took immense pride in being able to trace their ancestry all the way back to Abraham. And they looked down on everyone else who couldn't. They prided themselves in keeping the law of Moses, which was circumcision. And they regarded everyone else who didn't do that as being unclean. They were a separatist group. They didn't really believe in mixing with people who were different from them. And so Simon the Pharisee was a member of this group. He threw a party at his house and he invited several guests, among them Jesus himself. Secondly, we notice that the party that he threw was crashed by an uninvited guest, a woman. A woman of the city. Now don't think that this simply means a woman who lived in the city. There is a subtle hidden meaning in this description. And so that we so that we don't miss it, Luke is careful and deliberate in telling us that she, quote unquote, was a sinner. He does that to let us know that she did not belong at this party. She did not belong there. Not only was she not invited, but her lifestyle disqualified her from this party. She was a sinful woman of the city. Everybody knew her. Everybody in the city knew her lifestyle. Now Luke leaves it up to us to fill in the blanks as to what kinds of activities this woman of the city might have been involved in. She may have been the village prostitute. She may have been a woman, I'm sorry, a husband stealer. She may have been a homebreaker. This woman of the city, she hears that Jesus is at Simon's house. And not only does she hear that he's at his house, but she crashes the party, and she begins to do some things to Jesus, which is not very hard for us to see as perhaps being an extension of her sinful lifestyle. She lets down her hair she wets his feet with her tears and she kisses them over and over and she dries them with her hair and she anoints them with the expensive ointment that she's carrying in her alabaster jar. This is what Luke tells us. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, meaning Jesus, was reclining a table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now keep in mind, keep in mind that this is a woman, not to mention a woman of the city. And so I want you to let the optics of what you're seeing let them disturb your sanctified mind for a little bit. A woman undoing her hair in public was not acceptable in that culture. It was regarded as inappropriate. Much less for this woman to be kissing Jesus' feet over and over again. Because you see, this was expressing a level of intimacy that was forbidden. In that ancient culture and so everything about what this woman was doing was culturally offensive and Simon finds it to be offensive it annoys him he thinks that Jesus should know better than to allow this woman to be doing all of this to him which seems to him and to us as an extension of the sinful lifestyle that she had been living So this is how Luke records what Simon feels. Now, When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. But I want us to note this morning that the irony of this whole thing is that this is not any extension of her sinful lifestyle. This is pure worship. Her tears are tears of regret over the many sins, and, and Luke describes it as such, the many sins that she had committed. Her actions are coming from a deep place, a deeper place than Simon recognizes. Which brings us to the third character in the story. This is the common denominator, if you will, Jesus. Simon the Pharisee had invited him to his house and this sinful woman came there because she heard that he was there. And Jesus is going to make himself the bridge that both of these people and people like them need in order for them to get to God. Don't you recognize that there are still so many people in our world and in our church, who are like both of these characters. There are so many who are like Simon, the self-righteous, who pride themselves in their pedigree, in their family history, who pride themselves in their religiosity. And then there are many people who are like this sinful woman, and neither of them feel comfortable around each other. You recognize that? The self-righteous would never think of letting somebody like this into their midst. And the sinner would feel so judged, so condemned, and so comfortable that they won't even think about coming into a church. But I'm so glad that Jesus, the sinless, provides the bridge that both of them need in order to get to the Father. In fact, Jesus himself says that no man, and you might put in there whether self-righteous or sinful, no man can come to the Father except through me. Those were Jesus' own words. So he is the bridge that both the self-righteous and the sinful need in order to get to God. Secondly, the self-righteous and the sinful are both debtors. They are in debt. Jesus tells the story of two very different men. Both of them owed money to the same moneylender. One owed the equivalent of a month and a half's paycheck. The other a little less than a year and a half's paycheck. Neither of the men could repay what they owed, and so the moneylender, the moneylender did what every one of us who owes a mortgage wishes that our banks would do, he graciously, very graciously forgave their debt. Now, those of us who have experienced God's forgiveness, we can readily identify with the joy that these two men must have felt when they were forgiven. Because you see, forgiveness fills the forgiven with love for the forgiver. Am I talking to anybody this morning? Forgiveness fills the forgiver, I'm sorry, the forgiven with love for the forgiven. Which is why Jesus asked Simon this question which of the two will love him more? In other words, which of the two will have greater worship? Because you see, worship is the expression of our love to the forgiver. I want to say to us this morning, never criticize someone whose worship is more exuberant than yours. You know, sometimes in church we do that. Sometimes the person who is worshiping God more passionately tends to derive criticism from the others of us who can't really identify the reason for the worship, never criticize someone whose worship is more exuberant than yours because you have no idea the size of the debt that was forgiven. And everybody has gone so quiet on <laughs> me <laughs> this morning. Boy, that must, that, must, that must really pinch you quite a bit. You see, maybe you have lived a sheltered lifestyle. Maybe you were protected from some of the bad stuff that people engage in. But maybe that person had no such protection around them, which is why they strayed into the circumstances and lifestyle that they did. I wanted to challenge us this morning, let their exuberant worship inspire your worship rather than your criticism. And so Simon's answer to the question is, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. When we look at this woman, we see her anointing Jesus' feet with an expensive ointment. Very expensive in that culture. You would recognize, some of you who listen to music, that C.C. Winans, in fact, wrote a song which captures the worship and the experience of this woman. She wrote, and I quote this lyric, you don't know the cost of the oil in my alabaster box. What she means by that is that you have no idea of the size of the debt that I owed and the forgiveness that Jesus gave towards that. And if, if the way I worship him is to fall at his feet and to kiss his feet and to anoint them with my tears and with my ointment, I will gladly do so because I know what he forgave me of. That's what that lyric means. So I want to challenge us this morning to bring to Jesus every week worship that matches the depth of his forgiveness. None of us can say this morning that Jesus only forgave us of this little. He forgave us of much. As we look at the story, let us see Jesus turning now to the woman. Now, this is rather interesting to me. He, he turns to the woman, but he says this to Simon. So he's, he's talking to Simon, but he's looking at the woman as he says this to Simon. He says this, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. So Jesus is rebuking Simon for his self-righteousness, but he does so while looking at the sinful woman. Then he says some things to Simon, you see, because Simon the self-righteous Pharisee did not wash Jesus' feet, but the sinful woman did. The self-righteous Pharisee did not greet Jesus with a kiss, but this woman never stopped kissing Jesus' feet. Self righteous Pharisee did not anoint Jesus' head with oil, but this woman does so with her expensive ointment. All of these things are basic forms of hospitality, which every Jewish person knew and was taught that they should extend to others. Simon failed to do that, but the sinful woman, she defied all of the cultural norms. That's why Jesus says she loved much, because what she did was very costly, not only in terms of giving the expensive ointment to Jesus, but she went against everything that the culture taught her not to do. Therefore, she, was, she loved much and she was forgiven much. So both of these were debtors, Jesus says. Both needed forgiveness from Jesus. Now notice carefully that she received it But Simon did not, because you see, she had an accurate sense of her own sin, and she was weeping at Jesus' feet over the shame that she felt over her very many sins. She was so ashamed of her sins that she found the only appropriate place that she could find. You know where it was? right behind Jesus. She didn't even stand in front of him because she was too ashamed of that. She stood behind him and she stood at her feet, at his feet, I'm sorry. And so her heart was full of faith and her eyes were full of tears. I want to say to us this morning that we are not only just like this woman, but we are this woman. We owe a debt to God that we can never repay. No matter the number, size, or depth of our sins, Jesus forgives sins. Wow. And I thought that this place would erupt with the (laughs) amens of sins that have been forgiven. Jesus forgives sins, and the, the only appropriate Response to the forgiveness of Jesus is to pour out our worship at his feet. That is the only appropriate response we can make. Here's our third and final point Nothing is more freeing than the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And he said to her, Jesus does, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you, go in peace. Now notice that there were two things that Jesus says to the sinful woman. These two things are the things that every debtor needs to hear. First he said to her, your sins are forgiven. That means your debt is canceled. Your debt has been paid in full. There's no need for you to feel condemned anymore. You have a zero balance. And how many of you would like to wake up one morning and hear that? You have a zero balance. Just like that anonymous donor did to us a few months ago, there's a zero balance on the church's mortgage. The debt has been forgiven. Jesus says, Your sins are forgiven. Now I find it interesting that nowhere in this passage does Luke record that the woman ever asked Jesus for his forgiveness. She didn't do that. She didn't do that at all. Why then does Jesus say to her, your sins are forgiven? I believe it is because Jesus understands the language of tears. And I did hear an amen back there. He was faint, but I heard it. (laughs) Jesus forgives the language of tears. He, He understands it. He understands the language of the heart. Sometimes no words need to be spoken. Sometimes they do need to be. He understands the language of love. And so what this sinful woman was saying to Jesus by her tears and by her love was that she was remorseful. She was ashamed over her many sins, and she needed his forgiveness. She came to Jesus with a posture of brokenness and humility. He came, she came to Jesus with deep contrition, and God's word tells us that Jesus will never despise a broken and a contrite heart, nor will he ever turn away any who comes to him and ask, asks for his forgiveness. That's the first thing Jesus says to her, your sins are forgiven. The second thing Jesus said to her was, your faith has saved you, go in peace. In other words, your actions, those things that you were doing to me, those things prove to me that you have faith, that you believe in me. And so you need no longer to be tormented by your past, whatever that was, go in peace. You're free. Everything between you and me, is now settled. What a blessing it is to hear those words. What a blessing it is to know that you are forgiven, that God no longer holds your past against you, whatever that is. You're free. Go in peace. But don't you feel somewhat saddened for Simon, the self-righteous? Because you see, as you read the story, he received no such blessing. Jesus does not say these same words to him. He could have, because Simon was in the very same room where he heard Jesus pronounce this blessing over this woman. Simon could have received this blessing, but he could not bring himself to the place of humility and contrition and repentance that this woman did. He remained enslaved in his religiosity because, you see, nowhere else in Scripture do you ever hear anything else about Simon. This is the only place in Scripture that his name is mentioned. How sad that is. Please hear the bottom line of our message. These are not my words at all. They are straight from Scripture. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Those of us who recognize our dependence upon God daily and in humility come to him, we receive his grace, his blessing, his favor. Those who remain proud are resisted and rejected. There are three ways I wanted to apply this message this morning. First of all, tell Jesus of your desire to have him be your bridge. In this point, I'm speaking specifically to those who have never come to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. I want to say to you this morning that because of the holiness of God, there is a great gulf between you and God. You can't cross over this gulf to get to where God is, and God won't cross this gulf to get to where you are except except to bring you to himself. All that it takes for you to cross this bridge is faith, faith in Jesus Christ. You come to him in humility, and you tell him that you want him to cancel your sin debt, however large or small that is. And then you wait long enough to hear him say to you, your sins are forgiven you. Now go in peace. Everything between us is settled. Not because you worked for it, but because you've placed faith in my son Jesus Christ who died on the cross to make things right between you and me. I wonder if I'm speaking this morning to any person who needs to get across that bridge You've been working hard to get there and realize that you can't do that on your own. But this morning, you want to say, Lord Jesus, I want to place my faith and trust in you so that you might forgive me of my sins and make everything between me and you right, with every head bowed and every eye closed. Is there even one person among us this morning or one person online wants to allow jesus to be that bridge that allows them to get to god if there is may i see your hand yes i see that hand is there any other hand this morning i see that one as well let us pray together lord jesus for those two persons who raised their hands we thank you for that we thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart and life. And God, we pray that you'd make it real to them this morning that Jesus, who died on the cross to forgive their sins and to reconcile them to God, that Jesus has indeed done that work in their heart and life. May they leave this place in peace, knowing that it is well with their soul, that everything between you and them has been settled, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to challenge you secondly this morning to always watch your posture. Always watch your posture. And by that I'm speaking more in terms of your, the posture of your heart, your, your, your spiritual posture. Because you see, your posture says everything about you. It says whether you are a person of humility or whether you're a person of pride. Do you live with a sense that you are absolutely dependent upon the grace of Jesus? Does it ever occur to you that you bring nothing to the table? Uh, Nothing that qualifies you whatsoever to be in God's presence? But that you are utterly and completely dependent upon the grace of Jesus? Do you live that way? Or, Do you live with a sense that you are God's greatest gift to the universe? (laughs) There's some people who feel that way. You know, which which is your choice? Now I heard a pastoral colleague of mine preach a sermon entitled Worm Food. That was the only, that was that was the title of his message, Worm Food. And the the premise of his message was this: that we are nothing but worm food. Because when we die, after a few days, Worm is going to devour us. We are going to be food for worms. And I think what he meant by that is that we must always have a posture of humility before God. This woman's posture of humility must always be ours. We are completely dependent upon the grace of Jesus. And then finally... I want to say to us this morning, I want to challenge all of us to give God our exuberant worship. Our exuberant worship. And we did that this morning. We worshipped exuberantly this morning. I find that King David was the Bible's greatest worshiper. If you doubt me, look at the Psalms. And how many times he wrote about singing a new song to the Lord. How he wrote about shouting to the Lord with a voice of triumph. How he wrote about clapping your hands to the Lord, all you people. He even wrote about dancing unto the Lord. And in one particular experience, and I think this was probably the capstone of David's worship, The Bible tells us that he danced before the Lord with all of his might. Now, that must have been some dancing, because he lost his clothes in the process, and only his undergarments remained. So that must have been some dancing. So he was a great worshiper. But in one particular passage, there's an experience between King David and a man called Aruna. You can read about this in Scripture. And David recognizes that Aruna has a threshing floor that he desires and he wants to purchase it. Now David is the king. He's the most powerful man in all the world. He could have simply just taken it, but he offers to pay for this threshing floor. And the owner says, "Man, you are the king. you can just have it." And David says, "No. I am not, and I want to quote I want to quote him exactly. This is David's response. He says, no but I will buy it from you for a price. I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. In other words, my worship to God is going to be costly. I want to ask you this morning, how costly is your worship? How, cost, what does it, how much does it cost you to be here on a Sunday morning to worship? I want to suggest to you this morning that if your worship doesn't cost you anything, it may not be genuine worship if it doesn't cost you anything. And yes, the doors are open. Nobody, there was nobody standing at the door saying, hey, would you pay something to get in here? We don't do that, obviously. But it must cost you. It must be a sacrifice that you offer to God in worship. So I want you to re-examine your worship And to see whether or not you're giving to God your exuberant worship, that that it costs you something. It is a sacrifice of worship. Let's pray together. God, how grateful we are for this unnamed woman. Luke doesn't even name her. And yet we are her. We're just like her. And Lord, she has shown us the gratitude of a heart that has been forgiven and released and relieved of her burden and weight of sin. God, you've done that in our hearts as well. We testify to the joy of being forgiven. And yet, Lord, very often our worship does not match the forgiveness that you have given. So, Lord, please help us. Please help us to give ourselves fully to you so that we might worship you with the sacrifice of praise of which you are worthy. Help us not to be like Simon the Pharisee who was proud, too proud to acknowledge how much he needed you. But daily may we live with a sense of dependence upon you, upon your mercy and your grace. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.